0: Gospel chapter 27 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They do have Bibles and just get their attention. They'll get one into your hands. It's marked to our text and always great to hear the word of God, but doubly great to be able to hear it and uh, read it with your own eyes as well. And so take advantage of that opportunity. And um Sunday mornings, we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and we come this morning to Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember when he, that is, Jesus, was still alive, how that that how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. And therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people, he has risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have your guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's a living word, an eternal word. And we thank you, Lord, that no matter where we've been in life, no matter where we are today, whatever our age, whatever our background, whatever our interests That this passage has something to say to us, something that you want to have built into every human life to dominate our thinking and our feeling, our decision making and no greater decision in life than what we do with your son. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word this morning by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, our text this morning, Jesus has already been crucified. And following his crucifixion, two men, one by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and another a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, went to Pilate and asked permission to remove his body from the cross and to give his body a proper burial. Permission that Pilate gave to them. They then took jesus body and proceeded to wrap it very carefully, very lovingly in the manner of the Jews, with long linen strips with the placing of in this case a hundred pounds of spices, aloe, and myrrh, specifically into the folds of the linens to anoint jesus 's Body for burial, and then his body was laid in the tomb. And it was Joseph's tomb, a tomb that had been cut out of, carved by hand, out of solid stone there, in the mountains that surround Jerusalem, there, really just a stone's throw away from the uh, Calvary where Jesus was crucified. But it was intended really for his own burial and the burial of his family, as I said, cut out of stone. When a, 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 a tomb was cut out of stone, there would typically be room to allow for a single body to lie in it. And then another section of it that could allow storage. Nobody, even not a man like uh, Joseph of Arimathea, was wealthy enough to be able to carve uh, into solid rock enough room to accommodate you know, his own body than the body of his wife and so forth with his ancestors. I mean, there wouldn't be the room for it or the, or the wealth to be able to do that. Typically, what would happen is when a person would die, their body would be laid on the open stone there. And uh, sometimes you've got limestone and all. And, but the, the elements and the stone itself begins to work on the body. And the body begins to break down until after about a year or so. You're basically left with skin and bones. And then someone would come in and they would then take the body. It would be kind of broken up according to the bones. And so whatever would be the length of the longest bone, you'd be put in uh, uh, boxes, stone, limestone boxes, ossuary boxes. They, the bones would then be placed in that very small kind of compact and it would be put in its place and, and when a body is only taking up, you know, about double the length of a shoebox, then you can you have a lot of room to put a lot of ancestors in that burial ground. And that kind of a burial space was very, very valuable in those days. And so this tomb typically carved with room for one body and then some storage kind of places for for uh, for the storing of of the bones. Then they would secure the tomb with a large stone that would be rolled across the mouth of the tomb. Now, don't think uh, f- don't think Flintstones uh, don't think of kind of a prehistoric cave where this opening is just absolutely gigantic. Don't think cave uh, kind of situation, because then the stone that would be required to roll across an opening that you could bring a uh, you know, drive a car into, uh, nobody could carve it, nobody could move it, even to set it in its initial place. So typically they would carve kind of a smaller opening that you would then go in, duck down comfortably to get in, but it wouldn't be this wide opening. And when you think about the tomb and burial place of Jesus being buried, don't think of like this gigantic round stone that's rolled down a hill and then funk right into the opening. What they would do when they would carve a tomb is they would then carve uh, out of, when they would do it out of stone. They would then in that same stone, they would carve a trough across the front of it. And then they would take a large stone, much like a wagon wheel, only a bigger and solid stone uh, somewhere between six inches and 12 inches wide. And they would make a trough that would be that width. They would then take the stone, would take a lot of labor to do it, put it in that trough. And they would always cause there to be a uh, an incline down to the opening. So when that stone would be put in its place, it would then roll into its final position, covering that hole. In other words, it would take a lot of effort to be able to roll that stone back up that kind of incline to access that cave because you don't want other people getting in there after you've been buried or your family's been buried in there. You certainly don't want wild animals. So it was a very, very secure way to secure a tomb. And so this is what they they would have done in the securing uh, of of that uh, tomb. And believe me, they all understood the predicament that they were facing. We remember Uh, As we'll get to in the coming week or two, where the women who were going on the morning, Sunday morning, the morning of Jesus's resurrection, their great concern when they were coming to the tomb in order to further anoint Jesus's body for burial was how in the world are we going to move that stone? I mean, two women weren't going to move that stone. Whole group of men weren't going to move that stone. That was the weight of it. None of this. Here you have Jesus dead. Uh, he's been laid in that tomb, he's wrapped in linen and spices, his dead body, the stone has been rolled across the opening of the tomb, and yet none of this was sufficient to alleviate the concern of the Jewish religious leaders at that time. And they have this haunting concern, uh, the chief priests do, and the Pharisees. Notice in verse 62 that on the next day, that is the day after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus Jesus has already been dead a full day. His body has already been in that tomb for a night. This amazing three-day, three-night retreat that is happening in the center of the earth at Abraham's bosom with Jesus speaking to the Old Testament saints of his fulfillment of the scriptures, testifying to him as the promised Messiah. That is well underway. Jesus, his body, though, laying in that tomb. And so they come, verse 62, these religious leaders, they come together to Pilate, and I love it. I mean, you look at it the day before in the crucifixion of Christ. Everything went their way. It could not have gone more perfectly. They could not have, in their wildest dreams, have believed that the plan that they had foisted upon Pilate to secure the death of Christ, they it absolutely, sure, there were some hitches. They had to get people yelling and screaming and all. But, I mean, at the end of the day, they had Jesus dead on that cross, which was their intent. And so, in their mind, they then go to sleep that night, confident that they've eliminated the single great risk that Jesus posed to their power and to their traditions, to the great money-making machine that religion had become under these religious leaders. And so they go to sleep with that confidence. And yet, interestingly enough, they wake up the next day, and to a man, they cannot rest. They all wake up thinking about Jesus. He's still troubling them. And they have this unshakable sense that for all the appearances of victory the day before, that somehow they had still lost the war that they had waged against Him. And each of them has this terrible sense that the cross had not solved their problem, but had only created a bigger problem for them. Because now they're concerned, not so much with His death, but about the possibility of Jesus' resurrection. And it was a legitimate concern. Jesus had repeatedly spoken of His coming death at the hands of the religious leaders, that He would be dead for three days, and that He would rise again on the third day. He spoke it to His disciples. Matthew chapter 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. This was something he said to them repeatedly to prepare them for the events. To the religious leaders themselves he had spoken of his resurrection. They came to him one day demanding a sign. As, a, as proof of his claim to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. They had signs enough all over Israel. As I've said before, from the north to the south, to the east, to the west, you have lepers who were cleansed of their leprosy. You have people who were blind, who had their sight restored to them, their hearing restored to them, those that had been deaf. All of these miracles. You have to remember, put yourself in the place of the Jews in those days. From the time of Malachi and the ending of the writing of the book of Malachi, God, He just went silent on the Jewish people. He went silent on speaking prophetically to them. There is a 400 year period of silence between the Old Testament writings and the coming of Messiah. There are no miracles. There are no great things happening. No great things of God speaking. It's just quiet. And it's like the pregnant pause that God gives in human history to give the impact for the coming, the birth of His Son. And then with the. The birth of Christ into the world would bring not only salvation, but the supernatural and the miraculous of it. It wasn't like there were a bunch of people cleansing lepers in those days. It wasn't like there were a bunch of people casting demons out of people in those days or healing the blind or healing the deaf. Jesus came on and he was like a one man Fourth of July firework demonstration of the supernatural. No one in their right mind could look at Jesus and not, if they were honest about it, come to the conclusion that he was precisely who he said that he was that's why nicodemus came to him early in his ministry by night and said we know he didn't just speak of himself he was speaking for more than one in that among those jewish religious leaders we know that you are come from god for no man could do the works that you're doing unless they were come from god they had evidence for his claims All over Israel, but Jesus in his grace, he condescended to them and he said, all right, I'll give you one more miracle. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights alone, only resurrection. On the third day, I will rise from the dead. And in speaking this, all of it was a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit's prophecy through King David in Psalm 16, which declared that when the Messiah came into the world, yes, he would die. Yes, he would be buried, but he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption, for it to rot. He would not remain dead, but he would rise from the dead. Psalm 16 verse 10. David writing, and to the Lord, for you, speaking of the Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol, and then of the Messiah, nor will you allow the your holy one to see corruption. Now resurrection happened to be one of Jesus' specialties, and they knew it. He had raised the son of the widow of Nain. He had raised the twelve year old daughter of a ruler of a synagogue by the name of Jairus. Jesus had even raised one of his best friends, a man by the name of Lazarus from Bethany, had raised him from the dead. I'll tell you, resurrection evidently is a terrible thing to the wicked. They are troubled by it. So they gather together, they begin to voice their concerns to one another, and they came up with a plan for protecting themselves. But once again, they need Pilate's involvement. you notice the request that they make of Pilate in verse 64? That Pilate would authorize a Roman guard to guard against any possibility of the disciples of Jesus coming by night, stealing the body away, and then falsely declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. Their, their request is specifically designed to eliminate any possibility of that, that the disciples would come by night, steal Jesus' body, and then fill human history with a false report of His resurrection. Their concern, verse 64, was if that happened, then the last deception would be worse than the first. In other words, The report concerning his resurrection would be more damaging to them than his claim to be the Son of God. I think it's very interesting in verses 63 and 64 that both of those verses provide absolute proof, not from the mouth of Jesus' friends, not from the mouth of his followers or his disciples but absolute proof from the mouth of his enemies against any kind of later fantasy that might arise within the heart of man that Jesus had not actually died on the cross, but that he had merely swooned, that he had fainted on the cross when they removed him from the cross, put him on the the uh, coolness of the stone in, in the tomb, that as he laid in that condition for a period of time, that he revived in that condition. He had not actually died and been resurrected from the dead. He had actually swooned and had merely revived. Jesus' enemies here, twice, once in verse 63, again in verse 64, declare him to be dead. They knew that he was dead. From the mouth of his enemies, no credence for what is a, a, a theory that is believed by some and has a, a significant enough of a following that's been given a name. The swoon theory. Even these men could not attach themselves to something as ridiculous as that in their own minds. They plainly declare him to be dead. I think another amusing aspect of all of this is that the concern of these religious leaders, that Jesus' disciples were capable of a conspiracy or a plot to, number one, steal his body, and then to spread a false report that he had been raised from the dead. And so they have this concern that Jesus' disciples were capable of this conspiracy, capable of this plot, and of course that concern of theirs was completely unfounded. They really gave the disciples a lot more credit than they deserved. The last thing in the world the disciples are thinking about at this point in time is Jesus' resurrection. In fact, when the women come on Sunday morning, again with more spices to further anoint the body of Jesus, as they come that morning intent upon uh, anointing Him in in that way, they are fully intent upon finding a dead body to further anoint Later on in Matthew's Gospel, as we'll see in the coming weeks, the angel of the Lord rolled back the stone that covered that tomb, not to let Jesus out, but in order to allow the women and then the disciples later to become witnesses of his empty tomb and thus of his resurrection. And, and so he had, that angel then had to send the women to inform the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. Later on that evening, after Jesus had appeared to the twelve on the day of his resurrection, Thomas comes in. He he had missed the meeting somewhere, uh, doing something. He comes in, he hears the report, and he declares, I don't believe it. I don't believe in his resurrection. I don't believe that he is resurrected. And unless I can put my hand in the very holes, my finger in the very holes in his hands, and put my hand in the hole in his sight, then I won't. Believe it! I'll tell you, these people—God bless them—but they were not even remotely capable of thinking about, let alone pulling off what these religious leaders were worried about. They were not concerned with any deception; they were only concerned with self-preservation. Now, you will look at Pilate's response in verse 65. He granted them their guard, but he has an editorial comment. It cracks me up. I think this guy's unhappy at this point. So he grants them the guard, but he does with the added statement, go your way, make it as secure as you know how you secure that tomb as best as you know how. And he not only gives them their guard, but he makes the entire Roman garrison available to them that is stationed in Rome. Don't take too Don't take three. Don't take four. Don't take ten. You take as many Roman soldiers. We're talking about the Praetorian Guard. We're talking about elite special forces kind of people in the Roman military, the greatest military in the world at that time. You take however many you think you need in order to satisfy yourself that you've put a sufficient guard around that uh, tomb. He makes all of them available to them for the task. And he had plenty of Roman soldiers stationed there in, in uh, Jerusalem for them to choose uh, from. He leaves the management of it entirely up to them. Take as many as you think you need to guard against the false report of his resurrection. I think that this reveals, this statement of Pilate reveals that he's either amused with them. Or he's just pretty fed up with them at that point. And I don't think that he's amused. And the reason that I don't think he's amused with them is the phrase that he says to them. He says, uh, tells them to go their way. In the original language, the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, that go your way is a single word in the Greek. And it literally means to lead under. The idea is of something seeking out of sight. He is basically telling them, get out of my sight get out of here, disappear, go away, I don't want to see any more of you. Pilate's fed up with them at this particular point. He's fully aware of the fact that they had pressured him and manipulated him into ordering Jesus' crucifixion the day before. It wasn't something that he wanted to do, and it was something that, uh, uh, he was no more comfortable with in terms of himself internally the day after than he was the day before. He knew they had delivered Jesus to him out of envy. He knew for a fact over and over again he declared that he couldn't find a fault in Jesus. Each time they would then, he would defend Jesus, they would come against him and, and shout him down and, and finally he senses that the, the trap that he's in and he desperately tries to wash his hands of the situation but they wouldn't let him. And he's tired of it. He doesn't like what happened to him yesterday and he doesn't like it anymore the day following. And so, in effect, Pilate is declaring, I'll supply you with as many guards as you think necessary to secure that tomb. You take as many as you need so that on the third day following this man's death, you will not have me or his disciples or anyone or anything else to blame for what happens. And Pilate seems to know that they've gone out on what is known today as a fool's errand. He seems to have a sense that they have no more hope of stopping the resurrection of Jesus than waking up in the morning and waving their hands at the sun and shooing away the sunrise. Well, undeterred, verse 66, they then proceeded to make the tomb as secure as they knew how. And they not only set A heavy Roman guard around that tomb. But then they had the stone covering the tomb sealed, which was a a, a cord covered with clay or wax, which was an official Roman seal that was impressed upon it. That forbid anyone uh, coming even close to that particular stone or to that tomb or to the guards that were guarding that tomb. How successful were their attempts Well, I notice how troubled heaven was by this Roman guard and the sealed tomb. Oh, no, a Roman guard (laughs) in a cord with wax on it. What will I do? And there's an old saying, the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And once a person believes that verse, I mean, everything else is just mop up. I mean, it's just simple after that. But notice how alarmed the Lord was. And, and how effective this was in stopping a resurrection in chapter 28, verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as the snow. And the guards, this great elite Roman force, shook for fear of him. They're losing control of their innards. They're terrified of what's happening here. And they became like dead men. Now, things turned out worse than they had ever imagined. They thought their biggest problem was the possibility of a false report. Of Jesus' resurrection. Now they've got a bigger problem. A real resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Ha, ha, ha. That's not from the Holy Spirit. That's just from me. That's my editorial comment. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Psalm 76.10. The Bible declares... Concerning God, that He is able to make even the wrath of man to praise Him. I think about it often. Concerning the blasphemy that's directed toward Him, the scorn, the disrespect, the ungodliness, the things that are directed toward Him. And I often think about that verse and how the Lord, before everything is said and done in human history, he will make even the wrath of man to praise Him and to praise His purposes. And He certainly did it here. These enemies of Jesus thought they would provide proof against Jesus' resurrection, and instead they ended up providing proof for it. They wanted to eliminate any possibility of the disciples coming by night, stealing the body away, and then falsely declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. And with their guard, they very effectively did so, leaving only an actual resurrection to explain the empty tomb. That seal and those guards established the fact that if that tomb was really found empty on that third day, then the only thing that could explain it would be the fact that Jesus must have risen from the dead, and he must have risen indeed from the dead. And little did they realize that they were proving the fact of the resurrection of Jesus beyond any controversy. The Bible speaks of the Lord, and one verse concerning him declares that he sees our thoughts while they're still afar off. He knows what we're going to think before we think what we think. That puts us at a terrible disadvantage in any kind of an argument with God. It certainly puts us in our place in terms of how small we are in, in, the, in light of God. And it certainly makes foolish any attempt by man to try and trap God or to make a liar of him or a liar of Jesus and his prophecies or to try and trap the son of God inside of a tomb. God knows what we're going to think before we even think what we're going to think and is able then to work it so that it is not effective against his plans and against his purposes. And to me, this great plot of the Jewish religious leaders at that time, it speaks to us of the foolishness of betting against God. And against his word. God wasn't troubled. And he wasn't anxious over this plot that they had. They chose here to bet against Jesus' words. And they found out that it's a folly to do that. That his word, his truth, is the only sure, unshakable thing in the world. Jesus said heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my word will never pass away. For those of you who sit here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus. Do you know why this little section of scripture, one of the reasons that this little section of scripture exists in the word? It is not supremely so that God could poke the religious leaders of the day in the eye with a resurrection. But it was in order that you would see the actions of even his enemies against him here. And the actions of his enemies work so thoroughly and quietly and majestically against them that they, in fact, in their own actions, have removed any credence to the swoon theory in human history. And his own enemies have removed for any thinking person Anyone investing even five minutes of their time or their mind in the idea that Jesus was then put inside of a tomb and His body stolen by His disciples and a false report entered into human history related to Him. This is placed in the Scriptures because God knew that you would be raised in the world At a time in which you're being raised in the world in which those great theories are put out in order to undermine the faith of people related to Christ... And then people listen to them and they give them credence. Yes, the swoon theory. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. Well, they just went and they stole and then they put the report out. And then nobody ever goes to the word of God where God said, I saw this thing coming 2000 years ago and I placed a safeguard for your faith in Christ. By allowing this event to occur so that you would not be deceived by the foolishness of man today who are as full of false motives, as threatened by Christ today as ever they were, even religious men, as ever they were 2,000 years ago, and have no concern for your faith, only that their little religious machine would continue, even if it means you missing heaven. Or the secular equivalent of that. God loves your soul. God knows what you face in this world. How diabolical it is. How sophisticated it is. How it works so uh, layer upon layer upon layer in its brainwash to keep people from God. To keep them from Christ with so many lives. And he comes in. And he allows this great thing to happen, to remove two of the greatest lies that he knew would be spread about his son and his son's resurrection. So that those lies would not be a stumbling block to you coming to faith in him. Jesus raised himself from the dead on the third day. A demonstration of his power and his authority. the father raised him from the dead to testify to the veracity, the truthfulness of Jesus's life, his teaching, his miracles. As a witness to us that we should put our faith in him. You look at the detail of God's word. Look at the lengths he goes to in his word to protect your faith to inspire your faith, to give birth to faith, provoke faith in you so that you can come out from among the lies of this world and enter into the life that God Almighty has intended for you, a life that unfolds when you put your faith in that resurrection, resurrected Jesus here this morning. That's where life is found. That's the love of God for you and for your soul this morning. Jesus is risen from the dead in order to become your personal Savior. And if you'll make Him your Savior today, everything changes. Not just eternity. Everything changes today. You become a new creation. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, comes inside your life. And He makes you into a person... That you want to be, but never don't have the power to do that. Never, he makes you into the person you can't even dream of being. But he knows what you've been made to be. And he comes into your life and he makes you into that person. You know who that person is? It's a person like Christ. Becoming new uniquely through your life like no other life in human history. God loves you and he wants to save you today. And this passage is a great encouragement to our faith in Christ related to what it is that he said about himself. And this is the Savior that we need, a resurrected Savior. And that is the Savior that God has provided for us. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our service. And they're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. He's who you're looking for. This is the life that you're looking for. The uncertainty of the world that is all around us on a daily basis that's shaking the whole world, no matter what its wealth is, no matter what its power, no matter what its its military, everybody in the whole world knows something is happening in this world. Something is wrong with this world. Everybody feels it. Everybody knows it. But there is a rock. There is a place that can never be shaken. God allows the world to shake in order that we will build our lives on the one place that can never be shaken. And that is upon God's word and upon his son. And these men and women would love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Hmm. Father, we love you. You know that, but we love to say it. We love the detail of your word. We love the nuance of it. But more than the facts, Lord, more than the picture that's produced in our mind as we watch all of this unfold, we see behind all of it your concern for our souls. Your concern that we would not be deceived by the darkness and the wickedness of human hearts and their lies concerning you and concerning your son. And we thank you, Lord, for the power of this witness from your throne to faith, to encourage faith in Jesus. And We pray for each man and woman that stands before you right now, Lord. Pray that you just would speak to their mind right now. They're your creation. Let them know they're home. Let them know this is the truth. Let them know this is how they enter into the life that you have for them. Just testify to them, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, and bring them into your family, into that unshakable place today. Thank you, Lord, for your word, the privilege of studying it this morning, and the privilege of being able to do it with one another, and to do it in fellowship with you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer for any